Hello, welcome to the Friday, August 12, 2016 edition of the Sands and Storm Center's Stormcast. My name is Johannes Ulrich, and today I'm recording from Stockheim, Germany. Let's start out with an interesting research paper that actually came out a couple weeks ago. I didn't cover it back then because I really wanted to have a closer look at this first. Well, uh, this research paper does outline a pretty interesting and new technique to blindly spoof TCP connections. This is of course pretty exciting and interesting because it's commonly believed that in modern operating systems TCP connections can't be spoofed blindly, meaning that without being able to observe the connection and being able to observe correct sequence numbers, you cannot simply inject data into a TCP connection. The sad part about this particular vulnerability is that it's actually not so much an implementation issue, but really a change to the TCP standard that has been made. And it is actually a security feature that was added to TCP that's sort of backfiring it. It was outlined in RFC 5961 on the good side, it's really only Linux and reasonably recent versions, meaning kernel versions 3.6 and later that implement this feature. But well, uh, recent meaning uh, 2012 and later. So let's talk a little bit about what's going on here as much as I can within the confines of this podcast. Please refer to the actual paper and I'll link to it in the show notes to learn more about this vulnerability. Whenever I acknowledge data over TCP, I'll send you an acknowledgement number and ideally the next segment that I'll receive from you will use a sequence number that matches the acknowledgement number I just sent you. But well, that's not always the case. Packets arrive out of order and TCP is ready for that. In order to accommodate out of order packets, TCP sets up an amount of memory that it uses to hold these packets until we have all the missing parts in between. The size of this memory is commonly referred to as the window size. So essentially, as long as you send me data that's either of the current sequence number or the current sequence number plus the window size, I'll accept it and I'll at least store it in this window for later use. This of course would allow relatively easy TCP spoofing because now you could just blindly spoof a packet and you only have to get the sequence number right within the window size, which can actually be quite large in modern operating system. To prevent this, if I'm receiving data out of order, I'm sending back what's called a challenge act. So the sequence number you sent me is within the range of the window size, but it's not the next window number I'm expecting. I'm sending this challenge act. You have to acknowledge it back in order for me to actually accept the packet. If the packet is outside of the window size, then I'll just drop it. So what's the problem here? Well, in order to prevent some reflective denial of service issue, I'm going to rate limit these challenge acts. So I'm only going to send you, and that's a typical number up to 100 of these challenge acts per second. And this is where this trick comes in. If I am now blindly spoofing a 
packet to a host. At the same time, I have a legitimate connection open to that host. I can check whether or not that packet was within the window size by checking whether or not you exhausted one of these acknowledge acts. So one of these challenge acts. So what I do is on my legitimate connection, I'm just causing out of order packets. I will get challenge acts back. If I get less than 100 challenge acts back per second, then I know I used up some of these challenge acts using my spoof packets. And I know that packet was within the right range of the window size. And with that, I can limit the range that I have to sort search in order to find the right sequence number. Pretty tricky attack, uh, but according to the paper, it's possible to reproducibly do perform these attacks within a couple of minutes. There are a lot more details to it, uh, but really within that particular, within the podcast here, we just don't have the time to cover them all. Well, but what you probably really want to know is how do I defend against this? Uh, you can adjust in the proc file system on Linux uh, the rate limit for these challenge acts. So that's one way uh, to deal with this. Maybe even do something on the firewall if you can't do it on the host itself. If you sort of globally rate limit these acts on your firewall, then of course you confuse the attacker as to the exact counter of the operating system. Other than that, maybe just uh, turn off that particular behavior if your Linux kernel allows you to do that. I'm still researching some of the options here, trying to reproduce some of the attacks that these researchers presented, but uh, hopefully I'll have more details in a diary next week. Talking about diaries, I published a quick diary on Wednesday about some attempts to profile TLS connections with T-Shark. This is based on some work that Cisco published about recognizing common bots using TLS options. I was looking at it from a little bit of different perspective, looking at my servers and trying to profile clients that are connecting to my server. So these were not clients in my network connecting outbound. Tricky part here is uh, that uh, you have to deal with proxies. Proxies, of course, terminate the TCP and with that, uh, the SL or TLS connection. So uh, they imprint their own preferences here on the connection, but uh, you are able to profile some of these sort of standard simple command line tools and libraries like wget, curl and the like pretty easily by essentially looking just for an absence of uh, certain TLS options. Also some of the fingerprinting attempts off web servers or SSL servers or TLS servers or whatever you call it, uh, you can just spot them by looking at an exorbitantly large amount of ciphers uh, being offered uh, by the client. Take a look at the diary. Let me know if there's any addition or other observation that you would like to change. I think this really sort of deserves a little bit uh, more time than I could give it to sort of correlate user agents and TLS options better. 
And for those of you who have to do forensics on iOS devices, Pascal put together a neat little guide showing you where to find artifacts from various instant messaging software that may be found on the device. What I personally found is that if the device shared the same Apple ID with a laptop or desktop, that desktop often does retain a good chunk of the conversation history because well uh, iOS OS 10 really share the same history and exchange uh, these messages uh, with each other so even if you don't have the phone you may be able to pick up quite a bit uh, just from the laptop and vulnerabilities in eFobs that are used to unlock cars remotely aren't really anything great new and exciting, but there's a new paper at Usenix showing that they're actually more vulnerable than usually believed. Many of the attacks that were presented in the past, they typically relied on intercepting some of the codes and then launching the out of service attacks to make the remote waste some codes that actually never really make it to the car. Well, uh, this new work actually shows that you may not really have to become all that fancy. Turns out that the codes that the remote sends are far from random. Instead, they really rely only on a very small number of keys that are being used to create those codes. So essentially many of these key fobs really are just the same. And once an attacker is able to brute force the key, they're able to then clone that key fob and they'll be able to unlock the car remotely. Multiple uh, vendors are affected here. Volkswagen appears to be one that does it the worst, but overall it only takes a small number, like about four different intercepted uh, codes in order to work out the correct key. Well, and that's it for today. So thanks again for listening. Ran a little bit over today, but it was really uh, two podcasts in one. Talk to you again on Monday. Bye.